Nuclear Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. I'm your host, Olga Peters, and this is the show where we talk about how everything in Montpelier shakes out for the rest of us. I want to welcome to the show regular contributor Emily Kornheiser, one of three reps from the town of Brattleboro. Hello, Emily. Hi, Olga. Nice to see you. Good to see you, too. It's been a while. And then John Walters from the Vermont Political Observer, journalist extraordinaire, who is based in Montpelier right now, which is going to be very important for the conversation we're having around the flooding of 2023 or July. It might just be the July 2023 flooding at this point. We don't know what the rest of the year holds for us. But I want to welcome John. Thanks for being on the show today. Yeah, I I think the forecast for tomorrow includes locusts. Sure feels that way, doesn't it? It feels every every time I open my weather app, it's like bad air, bad rain, bad thunderstorms, bad something. Blood warning. Yeah. At one point, there were four active advisories on my weather app. Oh, wow. Well, I'm, I'm glad we're here today because as I said to you, both of you before the show, I was talking with Kevin O'Connor yesterday and, and the... The flooding has reached an interesting point that I think for a lot of journalists, when you're covering an ongoing crisis, there's the event, but then there's the recovery. And I think a lot of people start tuning out during the recovery. They're like, well, this isn't very exciting. However, you know, in my mind, what we do now and how we recover is greatly going to impact how we fare in the next crisis, whether it's flooding or something else. And so in many ways, this recovery time, although boring and bureaucratic and confusing and all those things, is so, so crucially important. And I would love, uh, John, if you would just share your experience right now being in Montpelier, because downtown Montpelier really did get hit pretty hard this round of flooding. The, the city of Montpelier was flooded completely. And, you know, uh, as, as I semi-jokingly said uh, on, on my blog, this is the third hundred-year event we've had in the last 30 years. Flood of 1992, Irene in 2011, and now this. And, um, you know, I have heard from, you know, downtown merchants who say, I could rebuild by my business, but why should I if this is just going to happen again? You've got that all towns and cities all over Vermont are are built in floodplains. You know, back in the 19th century, the water power drove the industry, and you built the city around that, and that's where the transportation corridors were along the rivers. Uh, that's where we built our roads and railroads. That's where most of the working class housing is in the low lying areas. Yeah. And we still, apparently, the state still doesn't have a handle on on how many people are currently unhoused because of last week's flooding mm. and how much worse our housing, our affordable housing crisis just got. Mm-hmm. It's a huge mess. And I will, just in case I get interrupted during this podcast, uh, we live on a hill outside Montpelier. And so we did not get flooded, but the water, the rain came down so heavily that it kind of backed up into our ground floor. 
And we are still dealing with that. My Those watching on Facebook uh, will see that my office is uh, what we call in the business higgledy-piggledy. <laughs> and we are, we are dealing with minor, very, very minor issues compared to what other people are going through. So it's possible I'll get interrupted during this podcast. Uh, <laughs> For an insurance adjuster? By an insurance adjuster. And in fact, I'm going to step out just for a second right now because uh, I need to deal with something and I'll be right back. So I'll turn it over to Emily. (laughs) Um, And this is a really good opportunity to say for folks who might not feel that they were very impacted, maybe you had a rug destroyed in your basement, maybe you needed to buy some fans, even folks experiencing that level of impacts from these storms should call 211 and report those damages because that is actually how we leverage federal funds. So it's not that, you know, it's okay if you don't feel like you need the help. It's okay if it feels like it's, you know, just a little bit and you've taken care of it. Anyone impacted by the storm with even a small amount of property damage should please, please report to 211. Because again, that's how we access federal money for your neighbors who might really need it more than you do. And if you've had big impacts, also please report to 211. But um, imagine that those folks might be more engaged. So I love that. I appreciate that John led with sort of how we've been building our communities up until now, because It's been really interesting to be in Brattleboro for this storm because we've done a lot of flood mitigation work post-Irene, pre this storm. And while we don't have sort of final reports back from the engineers who worked on that project, they've been monitoring every, they were there, you know, the first day of the storm and they've been monitoring very closely. So we're going to get a full report shortly, but Brattleboro experienced really no flood damage at all. There were some cases where the water was just coming down so high and people's lawns were shaped in such a way that they wound up with taking in water. But the flood zones that we set up, the flood plains that we set up post-Irene made all the difference. And our mobile home park in my district, uh, Mountain Home, which was devastated in the last storm, Um, has done a huge amount of master planning work. And while there were a few homes at the base of the hill that did have water flow through them, they actually didn't have any structural damage. And those are the homes that have, in fact, been um, asked to relocate to different places in the park. They are trying to turn that whole area into a floodplain. So and in speaking with um, our Congresswoman Becca Ballant about her statewide tour, she said there are a number of communities that she's seen that she's heard similar stories about that have done that flood mitigation work that made the difference. And I don't say that to crow about how amazing it is to be down here in Brattleboro. There's actually, um, it's more to say that in those cases, one, it's still the most vulnerable who are impacted. So, you know, here in Brattleboro, it was the newest, youngest farmers in the worst possible farmland who had their crops wiped out. And folks who didn't have permanent housing, who have been living in tent encampments, often down by the river or by the railroad tracks, had their um, settlements wiped out and their possessions um, washed away. So, you know, once again, most vulnerable, um, most marginalized, impacted the most by these storms. And there are things that we can do and should be doing in this recovery to make sure that we are building better next time. I was on a call with the administration earlier today, 
And um, about halfway through, you know, they kept on saying, well, we actually learned um, something during COVID to apply to this. And we learned something during Irene to apply to this. And I was like, oh, we are getting better at emergencies because we have so many of them. Um, <laughs> We've had practice. Yay. Yay. So that's sort of an interesting piece of all this. I'd love to talk a little bit about sort of all the different places. I think we're going to need to be focusing resources in all the different places across state government that we see impacts, but mm -hmm. I can wait on that, Olga, um, if we want to jump back to John or if that's a good place to go. I, I do want to jump back to John, but before we do, I'm just curious, can you share what folks have learned, what folks learned from COVID that they could apply to this? Because I think sometimes when we think of recovery and we think of crises, we put them in very definite buckets of a pandemic behaves like this, a flood behaves like that. And we don't always cross over. So if you can share that, I'm just out of curiosity. Yeah, a few quick little ones. So um, most of state government is much more able to relocate and respond quickly than they were before. So, you know, most of, you know, a huge amount of state government is in downtown Montpelier. They are all able to work remotely and function as teams remotely in a way that they certainly were not capable of before. So that's a huge difference. So they can be, you know, they've also moved very far away from paper records because of the pandemic, because they were working remotely. And so a lot fewer records were destroyed than were destroyed during Irene flooding. So that's sort of one piece of workflow. Another is, you know, a quick business shutdown and our understanding of what that might do to both the economy and what businesses might need short term and how to um, be both like flexible and accountable in that case. Um, I think the administration, I hope, has learned something in that case. Um, we know how, you know, giving money to individuals in times of stress can come back to strengthen our economy and people's lives overall. That's a lesson learned that we keep on coming back to. And that's true in this crisis, just as much as that crisis. One way this is different that I thought was really interesting, though, is that during the pandemic, people were locked inside and like really were listening to all information coming to them, sometimes to our own detriments, because we were all locked here and, you know, locked inside together. And in this, so it was very easy to get information to Vermonters. In this crisis, people are outside shoveling, um, building talking to neighbors. And so getting public information out in the case of an, what is seems to me to be an information overload is much more challenging. So that's just like a few quick little lessons learned in both directions. Thank you, Emily. That's uh, <laughs> definitely feeds my curiosity and my nosiness. So I appreciate it. John, you were mentioning uh, business owners, and Emily just brought up business owners. For, for folks who may not be familiar with a lot of New England downtowns, we tend to have buildings that have, in the main business district, will have retail or some kind of commercial on the first floor, and then the upper floors tend to be offices and or apartments. Um, and so with the flooding on the first floor, of course, I suspect a lot of businesses were hit in Montpelier. Have you had a chance to talk to business owners and, and what are you hearing from them? Well, it's it's a real mix. I mean, there's a huge amount of community support. There's a huge amount of you know response and help that's very heartening. The dedication of a lot of the merchants is also uh, very encouraging and, and kind of heartwarming. 
at the same time, you know, they're dealing with um, ma massive losses and uncertain recovery, and their businesses are in a floodplain that's been flooded frequently. So some of them are determined to build back. Some of them are doubtful. Some of them are questioning whether it's even a smart thing to do. You know, downtown Montpelier may take a very large and long-lasting hit from all of this. And, you know, Montpelier is one of our more prosperous downtowns. So that's not a, you know, in the big picture, that's not a huge issue. But, you know, right down the road in Barrie, they've been trying to rebuild their downtown for years and years. And they got hit at least as hard as, as Montpelier did. Uh, and have gotten a lot less attention, frankly, because Montpelier is the capital city. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there have been questions raised about whether Barry is, you know, whether Montpelier is getting more, more than its share of the assistance, mm. which is kind of an unfair thing to say because everybody could use all the help they're getting. But at the same time, you know, there are people in Barry who are wondering when it's going to be their turn. Uh, there was an absolutely devastating article, which I highly recommend, uh, by uh, Colin Flanders of Seven Days about a mobile home park in Berlin that was completely wiped out. And, you know, uh, those people are like, they're wondering what's going to happen to them. They have no confidence whatsoever that they're going to be helped out. Uh, one of them said, uh, if I got the... Uh, uh, the quote, right, nobody gives a F about a trailer park. And, you know, uh, Emily's story makes me think that maybe that's not quite so true, but those people are are in a world of hurt and they don't know where the health is going to come from. Uh, they had a guy, and Colin wrote about this, uh, they had a guy come through who was offering to buy their damaged mobile homes for cheap. Um, you know, give them a few thousand bucks and take their home away from them. And, you know, they don't have to worry about disposal and all that, which sounds like a deal, but it might interfere with them getting FEMA assistance. Mm. Uh, so, you know, the vultures are circling and, you know, people are short of uh, long on questions and short on answers. Uh, and that's true across the board, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, John. I think that brings us to what Emily had mentioned just a couple minutes ago about state resources and where we deploy them. Mm -hmm. What what have you been hearing around that, Emily? So um, I don't want to call an emergency interesting, um, but you know we really have very um, varied impacts. So we have four downtowns that were deeply um, hit, right? Montpelier, Barry, Ludlow, and Londonderry. Um, Barry and Montpelier are quite different from Ludlow and Londonderry in terms of um, not all that many people live in Ludlow and Londonderry, right? They have very um, vibrant downtowns, um, but those are vibrant downtowns that are supported by one large corporation um, and might have a lot more resources available to rebuild. Barry and Montpelier are very sort of nonprofit government heavy with a lot of huge number of apartments on upper floors above businesses. So those are, again, two very different, yeah. Yeah, sorry, Emily, just for clarity, when you talk about Ludlow and Londonderry and you say one large co corporation, they tend to be, are you talking about that they tend to be ski towns and tourists? They're ski towns, yeah. Okay, thank yeah. you. Just wanted that clarity for folks yeah, who live in the area. 
Mm-hmm. So, you know, those are ski towns, same ski mountains, you know, very, and again, not very many people live there. Barry and um, Montpelier, a huge number of people live there, huge number of sort of nonprofit central to their government central to their attention there. Um, certainly, you know, Montpelier has a lot more people with the time and the flexibility with their work lives to volunteer than folks in Barrie necessarily do. You know, um, the Barrie Montpelier class divide has always been sort of a fascinating um, and difficult dynamic between those two towns. And so we have that. And then there are a lot of areas of the state, a lot of the Northeast Kingdom had really significant road damage, Mm -hmm. um, but very little business damage and not all that much home damage. So that's sort of like another interesting part of this. So the mobile homes that were um, parks that were destroyed are mostly privately owned mobile home parks, not cooperative mobile home parks, which is another difference from Irene, Mm. which changes sort of funding context. And so those are sort of like some interesting pieces of the puzzle. When we think about what recovery looks like, you know, is it my computer that's beeping or is it someone else's? I think it's yours. I'm not hearing anything. Okay. When we think about recovery or um, even just figuring this all out, what we see is a few, few different areas. So there's businesses who might need um, some space in order to just sort of make it through to the other side of this, right? Like they want to retain employees. Those individuals need to be retained with their salaries. How does that all look, Right. Mm-hmm. There is, um, what is money like that? That look. There's unemployment insurance assistance, um, which is there's a special federal unemployment insurance assistance that is available for um, independent contractors, hmm. as well as sort of standard unemployment insurance. But again, we all know that unemployment insurance is less money than a salary. We've talked about that fairly extensively on this show and in the wider world. Um, and so, how do we make sure businesses are supporting the individuals who work for them as we get them assistance? And businesses are going to need redevelopment. The Small Business Administration, which is where most of this usually comes from, actually just provides zero interest loans. They do not provide grants. So that's one piece of the puzzle there. For individuals and individual households, the FEMA declaration provides a huge amount of assistance, provides sort of 100% of assistance now without the state needing to kick in any dollars, but has like a pretty low cap mm-hmm. in terms of the amount of dollars it'll pay for rebuilding. Most homes will cost more than that. We also don't, you know, we had a contractor shortage before this. Yes. And that's likely not going anywhere. Yeah. And probably so, there are contractors who now have to fix their own homes. Yes. <laughs> so there's that piece of the puzzle. And then there's towns and town roads and mm-hmm. state roads. So there is usually a $75 match from FEMA for roads. $75? Sorry, 75%. Oh, thank okay. you. A 75% match from FEMA for those roads. So the state's going to need to find the money to kick in for those matches to rebuild both state roads and to make sure that towns have the matching funds for town roads. Towns also have a lot of other infrastructure challenges, mm-hmm. such as... Um, you know, one community I saw, like, I think it was Johnson, their whole wastewater system was wiped out. Um, that's very expensive to rebuild. It's also the kind of thing that we've been wanting to re- invest in rebuilding around the state for a long time, right? Like a lot of our wastewater infrastructure is has been in serious trouble 
certainly Montpelier's for, you know, decades. And so as we're rebuilding, are we making sure we find the resources to rebuild better or are we um, just going to patch things together? Mm -hmm. We know that another storm is coming. And then um, there's also um, folks have property taxes likely due fairly soon on many properties that might have just been reappraised at much higher values than they even were appraised at a year ago, Montpelier, and they might not have homes anymore. Yeah, that's a pain. So what mechanisms do we have in state government to um, figure out a way to reconcile that, even legally, because we're out of session right now, right? Mm -hmm. The commissioner of taxes does not actually, the commissioner of taxes has the authority to essentially postpone due dates and has done that for the majority of taxes for people who are impacted by flooding in case anyone hasn't heard that yet. So um, sales tax, meals and rooms tax, corporate income tax, personal income tax, all of that um, has matched up with the federal postponement and none of those are due until the fall if you were impacted by flooding and you have to be impacted by flooding to be sort of taking that delay. Um, but the property taxes are due to towns. Towns can postpone those payments. They do have the authority to do that by essentially just waiving fees. Mm -hmm. But in the end, towns owe the state that money. And if the towns are not paying the state that money, that money is needed to pay for our schools, which also are having infrastructure damage and likely need some funding to rebuild. Montpelier High School being one of them. And so there's a question then of where are we going to find those resources as well. So it's really like quite a few different, um, and those are just what I've sort of come up with a few people off the top of my head that is not sort of a comprehensive overview, um, especially looking at where spending was with Irene. It's also possible that our revenues in some areas are going to be going down. Mm -hmm. As say we were collecting less meals and rooms tax from somewhere like Montpelier also might be going up because we have all this federal money spent coming in and we know how much federal spending can impact our state economy. So that's my yeah. sky high view. Thank you for that outline because it, in my mind, it's like you can kind of see the log jams that are sprinkled through the entire system that are going to impact other parts of the system, that nothing's happening here in, in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. We have just about five minutes before we need to hear from some underwriters. John, have, as, as someone have, who is, yeah. I have a follow-up uh, for Emily on this, and that is, I'm wondering, and I know Irene was before your time in, in the State House, uh, but I'm wondering if there are, if Irene is an example uh, of what we can expect in terms of a natural disaster's impact on state finances. We're looking at that, um, and certainly our Joint Fiscal Office is doing a lot of um, exploration of comparing those numbers. There are some big differences, though. So, um, you know, we really asked tourists not to come here after Irene because the damage in this time was much more localized. And um, the, I'm going to call Brattleboro the entrance to Vermont. <laughs> Never done that before, but I'm going to do it right now. The gateway. What? The gateway. The gateway. We are the gateway to Vermont. And I mean, Brattleboro is struggling, but Brattleboro is struggling because of opioids and um, homelessness, not 
because of flood damage. And so we have, you know, a full influx of tourists right now. They should just sort of be careful if they're going to go on very certain dirt roads, you know, a couple hours out of town. And so it's not clear if the flooding is going to impact tourist traffic, except for in these very specific towns and what that means. Also pre-Irene, we did not have the Wayfair decision and we did not have the same level of online shopping that we have now. So having stores be closed had a much bigger impact on our collection of sales tax than um, we have now. And we were less able to collect corporate profits from businesses that were located outside of Vermont but making sales into Vermont. And so those are a few places where I imagine that the revenue hit from Irene will not be anywhere near as heavy. Thank you for that, Emily. John, anything quick before we, we take a break? I guess I would like to make sure that we talk as we did a little bit earlier about uh, about the situation with homelessness. Uh, we were about to embark on a, an ambitious effort to get the unhoused into at least some kind of housing situation and also to build a lot more affordable housing and shelter capacity. And now we have unknown numbers of additional unhoused people uh, and fresh demands on state resources from the storm damages. Uh, so I'm wondering where we are at, if we have any idea with this big housing effort that has just started to unroll. I think the, I don't think that there are intentions to roll back the momentum forward or to pause the momentum. I do have some concerns about just sort of the limited capacity of state government to pay attention to multiple things at once. But it does seem that a lot of the flood recovery work is sort of, um, and the housing work are happening in slightly different places in state government. And so I'm going to retain some hope on that. I'm going to retain some hope that we are all capable of walking and chewing gum and that Vermonters need us to be capable of that. There's also, you know, the majority of, um, homelessness and especially the motel housing program was in Burlington, Rutland and Brattleboro. Barry certainly, you know, has its fair share of folks who are struggling. Um, but those three towns have seen very little impact. And so any momentum at the community level could keep on going forward. So, you know, there isn't, there certainly isn't any intentions to reallocate any funds at this point. Yeah. I think that's really important. And some of the programs that we put in place during the veto session, like the expansion of funding for mobile homes, um, might actually be a um, good synergy with some flood recovery. But again, we have no, we don't really know, you know, this is still early days. We really don't know how many folks are impacted Um you know, the early days of the Red Cross, they were actually turning away people without permanent addresses. That's changed now. Um, I I mean, my appalling, my sense of appalled at that is really like has no edges. But um, yeah, so we just don't really have a sense of how many people and how long they'll be out of their homes. And then um, Conator Kennedy, who's the um, speaker's chief of staff and lives in Montpelier and has been doing a lot of work in flood recovery there, said this morning, that, you know, while people's apartments on upper floors in Montpelier are per perfectly fine, 
in order to rehab the lower levels, building owners might ask people to leave temporarily. And who knows how long the temporary will be. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you. We need to hear quickly from some uh, underwriters here on WBEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station, but stay tuned. We will be right back. Welcome back to the second half of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. If you're just joining us, I am your host, Olga Peters, and I'm speaking with journalist John Walters from the Vermont Political Observer, as well as regular contributor Emily Kornheiser, who's one of three reps in Brattleboro. And if you're looking for the happy hour, you can find us every Friday at 2 on WVEW, as well as rebroadcast on Wednesday mornings at 8 a.m., also on the radio station. Thanks to BCTV, you can find us on many of the public access stations around Vermont, and of course, wherever you subscribe to your podcasts. And if you're ever interested in talking to Emily and I, of course, you can send us an email at themontpelierhappyhour at gmail.com. Hey, Emily, Mm. what should we remind listeners of? The views and opinions expressed here on the Montpelier Happy Hour are those of the host and the guests, respectively, not the station, nor their employees, friends, neighbors, pets. Thank you. This is where I want to dive in first, folks, because at the happy hour, we do try to bring it back often the topic to what are the stories we tell about ourselves and how do those stories shape things like our identity and policy and our forward uh, uh, movement. And, you know, I'm curious, what stories are you hearing about Vermont right now, John Walters, in this flooding? And... Are they in the context of Irene? Are they in the context of, you know, we always love our Vermont exceptionalism. Like, what stories are you hearing right now? Well, I mean, the overwhelming narrative is how is Vermont strong and it's neighbors helping neighbors and people pitching in and, you know, uh, helping other people showing up on Main Street and and helping merchants dig out their basements. you know, giving to GoFundMes, uh, giving to uh, community funds set up for, for flood relief and recovery. And it is all true and it is all great. And it's not enough to get us where we need to go. There needs to be an institutional government component to it as well. So we can tell ourselves how heartwarming stories and they are true enough. Um, I will also pause here for a moment. I spent part of part of this week in Long Lake, New York, which is a little tiny town in the center of the Adirondacks. It is absolutely Trump country. You know, these are the people who sent Elise Stefanik to Congress uh, by huge margins. Um, you see a lot of Trump banners and signs around. They did the same thing. They were hit hard by a, a dam breach. Uh, some people lost their homes. Uh, There's a lot of road damage. Everybody went out and pitched in. Uh, It's not something that just happens in Vermont. 
It happens uh, in a lot of places when disaster strikes. It does bring out the best in a lot of us. Uh, and it does, you know, generate a lot of goodwill and a lot of action. And that's the only good thing about having a flood, I think, is it reminds us of our human capacity to care for each other. One of my favorite, not favorite, I don't know why I need to modify my sentences today. Um, one of my strongest memories from post-Irene was having a lot of friends down here in Brattleboro who were really upset that they hadn't canned more, you know, like set more pickles aside or um, didn't have sort of a more self-sufficient, you know, sort of homesteading situation. And these were like people who were already sort of on the homesteading mm -hmm. wagon. And my reaction to that same phenomenon um, in the same community was, I am so grateful for sort of like American industrial agriculture and that like when our farmland is wiped out, we can get like, we can still get vegetables from a truck across the country and that we have canned food that can last a decade, not just two years, the way a lot of jarred, you know, jarred canned food is. And that there are helicopters that can come in and save us. And like all of that only works with a fully functioning government. And so I love Vermont Strong. I love the incredible mutual aid networks that built up during the pandemic that are being reactivated. Um, I appreciate that we turn out. I think it's been really beautiful what I've seen in downtowns like Montpelier and Barrie um, and Londonderry with people like all pitching in in the streets. But I do think that there's like a bootstraps, um, pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps vibe to it all that really keeps us from remembering that something needs to come next mm -hmm. and that we deserve for something to come next. And that is our obligation to hold our government responsible for doing something next. And that we shouldn't have, well, we shouldn't have to do it all ourselves because there is like, that is what government is for is to provide like, you know, warming shelters and cooling shelters and making sure everyone has potable water and like it's and Vermont Strong I think is like very heartening but it really keeps us from doing that you know there was this picture on Twitter that John Quinn former ADS secretary posted of the governor like digging out a neighbor's driveway with his backhoe and like so glad that the governor was doing that for his neighbor. What a, and I was like, why isn't the governor governing? Why is he on a backhoe? What is going on here? Well, I, was, I think it's, sorry, I think, Jen, it I, a, I think it it's a stronger same. story of in Vermont. We are so attached to surviving that we forget about thriving. And we're, I think quite often in these stories of like Vermont strong, as, as you said, that bootstrap component, of doing it all ourselves, we forget that we, we settle for, for just getting by and just good enough rather than um, sustainability. Sorry, John. Uh, I, it actually ties into something I wrote um, on my blog, um, you know, about, I, it was called, this is the easy part. And it was about standing firm and resolute at press conferences and talking about the, the steps that are being taken and, everything good that's going on. And yes, responding 
responding forthrightly in a crisis is a governing skill, but it is easy, it is not as difficult as maintaining and improving government over the long haul. And doing that long distance, that, that long-term response that Emily just spoke about is the harder task that awaits us or that we are transitioning to slowly. And so doing something like jumping on a backhoe helps a neighbor, but it doesn't, um, uh, that is the real test of leadership. It's not flashy. It doesn't make headlines. It doesn't get you live TV, but it's what we really need in order to make Vermont a more resilient place and a more uh, a thriving place for all its residents. And it's a lot less, you know, it's a lot sexier to announce like immediate funds available for small businesses that are struggling than it is to make an announcement about immediate funds available for town government as it does recovery planning, right? But the sort of ripple effects of one versus the other um, is quite significant and we need to do both, right? Mm -hmm. And so what we sort of prioritize because it's the sexy Vermont strong part of recovery versus what we prioritize because it's what will make, help us build back better. <laughs> that was an accident, but I am pleased with it, um, <laughs> is, is an interesting part of this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I sat in on one municipal meeting, I believe it was Londonderry Select Board, and they were talking about data collection and and how to collect the data about what roads have been hit, what culverts need to be fixed, that type of thing. And it struck me that, you know, on the face of it, this is a really like monotonous, you know, minutia kind of conversation. And yet, if you don't have the that granular data, you don't even know what problem you're starting with. Mm -hmm. And I've often said to folks, you know, because I have my my fiction writer life and my journalist life, you know, if I'm writing a, a movie about state government, I'm going to make it, you know, an action hero blockbuster, right? Cause that's fun. That is fun entertainment. But as a journalist, I like it when the select board meetings are boring, <laughs> you know, I like it when all the the FOIA requests are being answered in a timely manner. Like it's boring as heck, but it means everything's operating well. And that's ultimately what you want in, in your state government. You know, on that data and Vermont Strong, you know, I mentioned at the top of our conversation that folks should be calling 211 to report damages. Vermont Strong and that um that sort of call to arms, I think it's just the kind of thing that keeps us from thinking that our damages are worthy of mm. making a call to state government. And without sort of that ask for help, a public, a governmental ask for help, we don't know the scale of the damages and we can't prioritize resources. Very, yes. When Would you everything say that again, stays, Emily? I think that was yeah. very good. When everything, I'm not going to say it the same way because I'm not capable of that. When everything stays hyper local, when we all think we're just going to solve it between ourselves and our neighbors, 
we don't, and we don't ask for help from government, there's no way we can account for the scale of the situation or the challenges that we're facing. And then we can't prioritize resources effectively and we can't draw down federal money appropriately. So everyone in the state, even if you've had a little bit of damages from just taking on some water in your basement, please call 211 to report it. And uh, I have to say that whenever whenever I have seen a mention of 211 in the media, there seems to be someone rolling their eyes and saying it's impossible to get through. Also true. And and I, you know, that's the kind of that's the kind of nuts and bolts management of state government that is even more necessary than standing up and and being strong in a press conference. Yes. Uh, and it. it I mean, it's early days and all of that, but it kind of it it reminds me of the the first couple of months of the COVID epidemic when our unemployment insurance system just completely imploded. And it makes me it makes me wonder from the liberal political commentators viewpoint how competent our current state government is. And we have been reducing funding to 211 for quite a while now. It was a really robust program about, uh, and we'd invested a lot of resources in making it more and more robust about eight years ago. And then we've slowly- Oh, interesting. Like started limiting hours, limiting um, things that flow through it. It's been, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, let's just name this right now, because I believe, John, you had mentioned during the break that while it's early days, you have been hearing just murmurs on the ground questioning the effectiveness of the administration. And yeah. so let's just sort of name that and say, OK, so what are we expecting? Like when we say effectiveness, how are we defining that? What does that look like? Well, and, you know, the, the caveat is it is early days. Uh, we're less than two weeks away from the immediate deluge that caused all of this. Uh, we're still under the potential for more flooding. Um, so in a way, it's unfair to expect, expect state government to have all the answers and have everything in place. That said, you know, you see signs here and there. Um, you had... Um, you know, the state officials insisting at a press conference a few days ago that, that there was no town, <clears throat> there was no town in Vermont without water. And that turned out not to be true. And the public service commissioner got in some hot water for suggesting that a town official had, had botched informing state officials when in fact he had informed state officials and they had dropped the ball. You know, you had a Mark Mahalley, if I'm pronouncing his last name correctly, state rep from uh, Callis, north of Montpelier, uh, whose communities, his three towns in his district, and they have not seen any help yet from state, from the transportation agency or anyone else on getting their roads straightened out. Uh, and, you know, his comment was uh, the contrast between what the governor and cabinet members say and what is happening on the ground is striking. Um, so again, um, there are questions and, and uh, State Senator Becca White yesterday uh, on the subject of water tweeted out, there are towns without water in Windsor County. And if there are more towns out there that are not getting the help they need, are not getting, you know, the, the merchants in Montpelier are still waiting for trash disposal. There are still mountains of trash along Main Street and State Street. 
um, and the side streets where people live. Mm -hmm. So it's unfair to render any sort of final judgment, but there are questions being, uh, beginning to be asked about how effective the administration is. And I think uh, it is uh, incumbent on our media and on perhaps the legislature to take a serious look at this uh, once we're out of the immediate emergency. Emily, how about you? What are some hallmarks of when someone says effective government to you? What are some of those hallmarks? What are some of those? This is Emily's jam. I, oh, like, totally is. I need an hour for this question, Olga. <laughs> My God, what are you doing to me? <laughs> it's not even noon. <laughs> you know, at the very most basic, I want someone to answer the phone mm-hmm. in less than a minute. And I want the person on the other end of the phone to either know the answer to my question or to know how to get the answer to my question. And I want that person to be responsible for calling me back. Mm-hmm. And that is, you know, I think the worst example of that is, you know, my federal college loan servicing experiences. But I think, you know, at the state level, I think our unemployment insurance um, system is still rocky with that regard. And, you know, I've heard a lot about when no one answers the phone when we call 211. So that's like, for me, the most, like just someone answers the phone when you call. I think being able to think broadly and prioritize around um, ripple effects and planning for the future state government needs to think more than three months out, more than two months, you know, more than two years out needs to be really thinking generally, generationally. I think that's effective government. Mm -hmm. So again, you know, building back better, building back more resiliently, um, not doing what's sexy, but what's effective Mm -hmm. um, and deeply data informed decision-making. And that data is qualitative and quantitative data and includes the perspectives of those who are most marginalized and has you know, both geographic diversity, class diversity, um, racial diversity, identity diversity, all of those things. And so you know, when we only talk to the folks who are dealing with the recovery in Montpelier and we leave out the folks who are dealing with recovery in the kingdom or um, in Windsor County um, or in the islands, we're missing a very important part of the story. Exactly. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Well, your first comment about having someone answer the phone really struck a chord with me because it's my opinion that for our government, there's a lot of things necessary for governments to work and be effective. But it's also really important for them to be effective in a way that their communities believe in and trust and support and having someone answer the phone when you call when you've been told that this is the number you should be call is calling by government i think is such one of those little things that is actually a piece of bedrock for, yes for an effective democracy so I just have an example of a time of a place that government does work. Yes. That it's going to seem like something that doesn't work. So Route 30 down here in Brattleboro has been being repaved for a bajillion years now. And everyone's really frustrated about it. And part of the reason it's taking so long is because they're actually like scraping below where they usually scrape so that the like structural things that cause potholes, I don't have very good road words, but mm-hmm. um, 
will be fixed. And so it's not just like a surface, I don't know, whatever the it's, words are. It's not so. just an overlay or a patching. They're actually redoing the road. Yes. Thank you, Olga. And so um, part of that involves a lot of very spiky gravel and a lot of everyone. Yeah. And so there's like the traffic part that's really annoying. That's like understandable, but annoying. And the fumes that's sort of understandable, but annoying. But um, a huge number of people are getting flat tires from the spiky gravel. I, in fact, everyone I know, including my own family, has gotten a flat tire from the spiky gravel. The gravel is spiky because we actually don't have, the way we make gravel now is actually um, causes spikier gravel than the way we used to make gravel because of some sort of like the type of rocks we make gravel out of now. I'm not going to get onto that. So that's like one place, like essentially like, like our resource scarcity and the way we use resources has led us to this spiky gravel problem. But more importantly, when we write to the agency of transportation about it and the company doing the paving, they're actually incredibly responsive, provide comprehensive updates, will talk to anyone about anything that's going on, and people can file for damages and receive them. And so like government has created an incredibly annoying problem while trying to solve a solution. Some of that is like generational problems, like this ridiculous spiky gravel thing. Some of it, but they answer the phone when you call. And it is, it makes the world of difference. Mm -hmm. One thing that came up again, talking to another reporter, and I'm going to be very broad on the details because I don't know all of them, but I guess one of some of the flooding in Wyndham County in one community was caused by a, a dam that had given way. And we're not talking the big dams, you know, we're not talking Ball Mountain, we're not talking the the hydroelectric dams. It was a, it was a smaller dam that someone had, I think had on their property or maybe it had been uh, there for a long time and the community liked it. I don't know, but it was, it was like, it was a pretty dam. It wasn't necessarily a functional dam. And this reporter and I were talking about once again, that tension in Vermont about protecting the postcard. Like we like the pretty pictures, but what's, what's this piece of infrastructure or this pretty hillside or whatever actually doing like how are we serving it and how is it serving us and uh, I'm wondering if either of you have kind of come across some of that in your travels with the flood recently yeah a really good example of that is bridges where things get stuck versus bridges where things don't get stuck <laughs> yes. so if stuff gets stuck in a riverbed because of the way the bridge is structured that causes immense amount of flooding. And if a bridge is constructed so that the objects can flow under and through, we have a much less or much less light, right? It's like allowing the river to flow is how you avoid flood damage. Mm -hmm. To flow where it wants to. And so the more you like get it stuck by infrastructure or get it stuck with debris, the more flooding damage you'll have. And a lot of our beautiful old bridges, stuff gets stuck. Mm-hmm. How about you, John? Well, I, I'm going to mention something that's tangential here, and that is um, uh, Vermont Public, formerly known as VPR, has a podcast called Brave Little State, and their mm -hmm. current uh, their current episode was planned before the flood, but it's awfully timely. It's about our rivers and streams, and it's about how throughout the eons, our rivers and streams were sort of... Uh, 
uh, slow flowing and meandering and had a lot of floodplain. And in the course of civilizing our land, we made our rivers and streams flow much straighter and much faster and took away a lot of the floodplain. Yeah. And the result is that flooding is quicker and much more devastating than it would have been before there was human habitation. And of course, nobody's homes would have been flooded out by then. But uh, anyway, that sort of unintended consequences, that kind of thing is something we're going to need to look at and reassess how we handle our rivers and streams uh, from now on, because, you know, we are in the era of climate change and things are only going to become less predictable and more extreme. And this is, I hate to say it, just the beginning. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about flooding in general, of course, during the the highest water um, on that Monday in earlier July, I can't remember the date now, I was in downtown Wilmington watching the water overflow some of the banks, especially behind Craftsin and... and Although why were you watching it rather than going home to be safe? Because I was a reporter. (laughs) And I was reporting... I just like, I'm going to go another public service announcement. Like the rubbernecking that I have seen since this started, whether that is in a disaster zone or recreating, is not good for anyone. Don't do it. Okay, back to you. Also, don't swim in a river for like a month. We can't. The rivers are not safe. They are full of pollution and debris and unexpected currents. Even if it's like a little puddle that you've always swam at with your toddler, don't do it. Okay, back to you, Olga. Yes, the rivers are not the rivers we know right now. But I was sitting there and I was talking to the, I I did have a purpose and I parked my car away from, (laughs) so I could get out if I needed to. Anyway, um, I was talking to the emergency management folks and, and the town manager, but I was looking at downtown Wilmington and I was thinking about that discussion of with climate change, do we just need to take some of these downtowns and move them away from the river? Even if they've been there hundreds of years, pull them out and and move them. And I was thinking about that. And I was looking at Wilmington as an example, where right in the downtown near the Route 9 bridge, there are buildings whose foundations, like their basements, are the river edge. Like this is the riverbank, is this building. And it just brought home for me how knitted we are to our rivers in some cases quite literally and yet our involvement has actually caused part of the problem Mm -hmm. and i don't have an answer for that it's just what i'm sitting with right now of you know how we are part of these environments and how are we interacting with them and how are they interacting with us so I um I thought about that too. I think that a lot I think it's unrealistic to think that we're going to move downtowns, especially something like Montpelier's downtown, right? Where we have really multiple story buildings. But we don't have all that many downtowns. And so what we can do is to do these flood zones, floodplains just right above downtowns. Mm-hmm. 
in multiple places. And it really does, you know, it makes all of the difference. Thank you. We are out of time, John. Quickly, anything you want to add before we we end for the day? Well, I would just say, uh, in spite of my my mixed feelings about Vermont Strong, every little bit does help. Uh, if you know someone who needs help, help them. If you find a GoFundMe page for a family that's lost everything, you know, give what you can. Uh, you know, there are plenty of funds out there. Uh, for flood relief, for rebuilding, you know, pay your pay your taxes with the idea that you're doing something for your community, that money is going to good purposes. Do what you can. And, you know, we want to hold government accountable for what it needs to do, but every little bit does help. Thank you, John. And John, if people want to read your work on the Vermont Political Observer, what's the website? It is very simple, thevpo.org. That's short for Vermont Political Observer. If you, you know, type in, if you Google the VPO, you'll probably find me and the Vienna Philharmonic. <laughs> Always in good company. Emily, <laughs> how about you, if folks want to uh, reach out to you? Folks can go to emilykornheiser.org and you'll find links to all the ways to get in touch with me, um, as well as signing up for my newsletter. Thank you. And as always, you can find the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station, or subscribe to us wherever you find your podcasts. Take care, everyone. Stay safe and have a good weekend. Bye.